0: Welcome to episode 5 of How to Build a Sustainable Music Career and Collect All Revenue Streams. I'm your host, author Emily White. Today we're going to dig in on one of my favorite topics. And this episode is called How... Not How. Let's try Music publishing isn't scary or confusing. Plus how to land a sync placement. There's the how. Uh, So today's episode is supported by downtown music holdings downtown's mission is to shift the power the power center of the music industry into the hands of those who create and those who support creation by giving them the finest and most comprehensive set of tools and services downtown is committed to building a more equitable music business they believe in partnership advocacy and helping musicians develop sustainable careers so they don't require their clients to give up any of their copyrights. And one of downtown's companies is Song Trust, which is where Julia works. Um, so we're gonna be talking a lot about that today. If downtown wasn't involved with this podcast or Song Trust wasn't involved, I would still sing their praises. And actually, Song Trust is a great example of how to work with a brand. I've been authentically endorsing them for years, and that's why it came together as a very natural partnership. So I'm offering that as some advice for you all when you're working with with brands as well. So let's recap. We're on episode five. Uh, At this stage, in the methodical order, through the release cycle and the modern music industry that I'm taking you through, you should have your art together. We covered your pre-recording marketing foundation and your pre-order, so monetizing your music before it's even out. We talked about your business affairs and getting all your legal elements together around your music. And that'll be a part of it today as well. It's definitely a deeper dive today on, on songwriting and music publishing. And your recordings are now wrapped up because on Saturday we talked about how to record with or without a budget. So now that your music is recorded and ready to go, it's time to register your songs and ensure that you get paid for all of your songwriting. So let's dig in on that. Who remembers or knows the, the two main rights in music? Does anyone recall that? We don't have Oscar here today. Oscar had to go back to Berkeley. Yeah, Eli. Yeah, you do. Uh,
1: recording, so the masters, and then publishing. Very good
0: guy is ready for the music business programs, I'm going to be writing a letter of recommendation uh, for him for. So good job. Okay. So two main rights in music, the recording side and the publishing slash the songwriting side. Um, for all intensive purposes, songwriting and music publishing can be interchanged as far as terms go. So that's one thing to not be scared of. Music publishing is just talking about songwriting. So first, what is music publishing? Does anyone want to try to answer that? And it's okay if you don't know. But does anyone want to attempt? Maggie, you've read the book a few times. No pressure. (laughs) It's okay. I'll I'll give... Let me use this as as an example. So I was speaking at a conference in Madison a few years ago. And I asked a large audience the same question. Like, what is music publishing? And no one raised their hand. Finally, a meek hand went up and said... The, the panel before you was on music publishing. So they had just listened to an hour about music publishing and no one could answer that question. So uh, as I told the live audience before uh, we started webcasting, I have two goals with this episode. I mean, I have a few more goals with this episode, but like this is a big goal for me in life. I want songwriters to be able to understand what music publishing is and know how to get all their money for it. So, um, most people know what a record company's job is in theory. A record company looks after the recording, remember, I've got stuff in my hands, but, you know, two sides, um, and goes out and works that recording and collects all the money that's owed for that recording. So, it pushes the recording out, you know, through airplay, through sales, through streams, all that stuff, and then it collects all the royalties and money owed to owed oh, for that recording. That's all music publishing is for your songwriting. A music publisher's job is to go out and work your song. That could be through covers. Um, that could be through, you know, there's publishing royalties in, in streaming. You don't really have to remember all that. But all a music publisher's job is, is to go out and work your songwriting and then collect all the money that's owed to it. That's it. So it's nothing to be scared or run to the hills over. If you understand what a record company's job is in theory, then you understand exactly what a music publisher's job is for your songwriting. Does that make sense? Good, like seeing the head nodding. Okay, so next, how to collect on your music publishing. The first step is to sign up for your performing rights organization. And in the United States, that's going to be ASCAP or BMI. There are a few others, but the others are invite only. And anything I introduce on this podcast is accessible to you. Um, I've known songwriters, this is not a CSAC diss, um, but I've known songwriters with CSAC and some of the other performing rights organizations in the U.S. where they have been invited, and then CSAC dropped them a few years later. And actually switching performing rights organizations is a huge pain and takes like years. So in the U.S., it's going to be ASCAP or BMI, in Canada, it's going to be SOCAN. In France, it's going to be SESEM. In the UK, it's going to be PRS. So whatever country you're in, and I just saw that this podcast is charting in Tanzania, so shout out to Tanzania's uh, PRO, um, you need to sign up with your local performing rights organization, local to your country, and and register your songs. Now, I've been really surprised the past few years where I've met mostly students, but sometimes older than college students. Um, I've met songwriters who aren't signed up up for a performing rights organization, um, which was baffling to me. Because I feel like when I was coming up in the industry, you know, ASCAP and BMI were very, very prevalent at conferences. Like, hey, if you're a songwriter, sign up. If you're 15 years old or whatever, sign up. And I've asked these songwriters and students like, oh my gosh, why why didn't you sign up? This is money for your songwriting. And the answer is, oh, I don't want to sign my publishing away. And that's not what this is at all. Um, Performing rights organizations are regulated by the government. And personally, I think this next part is kind of messed up. Um, But if you don't register your songs within two and a half years, you don't get that money. So if you don't learn this until you're 40 or 60 or 25 or whatever... You, you don't get that money. It goes into what's called the black box and it goes to pay other songwriters, goes to pay ASCAP's rent, all of that stuff. So there is nothing scary about PR as most of you know that, but I've, again, I've just been really shocked and surprised um, to have met quite a few songwriters over the past few years that think they're signing their publishing away or something by signing up for ASCAP or BMI. Um, when deciding which one to go with, it honestly really doesn't matter. Um, You know, in my opinion, if you know a human at one of these companies, go with that one. You know, you might have a nice personal touch. You don't really need it. Again, this stuff is really automated and regulated. I do have a few tips in the book, uh, mostly through uh, Zoe Keating, who I interviewed for the introduction, where she feels, you know, the TV people are a little bit more with ASCAP. Or she pointed out, maybe look up you know, songwriters in your genre. And if you realize, oh, like they're mostly with BMI. But honestly, it really doesn't matter. Pick one. Go with it. Don't overthink it. It's not going to make or break your career to go with ASCAP or BMI. Just please pick one and, and go with it. Um, so once you're signed up. Um, You can also submit your set list. Oh, and also your performing rights organization, that's going to collect your songwriting royalties for you for public performance royalties. So we're recording this at No Studios. If, you know, you come here and play a set and say you're with BMI, you can submit your set list to BMI because No Studios is paying royalties, paying fees every year to ASCAP and BMI. Um, I don't know what the capacity is here, maybe 200. The fees that no studio pays is larger than a coffee shop, but smaller than a stadium, right? So anywhere your music is played live, like I said, it could be a coffee shop, could be a stadium, could be your own set. Um, that's where that money comes from. And also, only sign up for a PRO once. So if I'm Emily White, a songwriter, and I'm with ASCAP, but I start a new band or group, um, don't think like, oh, my new band's going to be with BMI, I'm still Emily White, the songwriter. So you just want everything. It's not gonna let you do that anyway, but just go with one, okay? And like I said, if you're like, oh, like the grass is always greener, I'm with BMI, but I wanna be with ASCAP. It is such a pain to switch PROs. <laughs> just pick one and, and go with it. Um, okay, so this is the other really important thing I wanna drill into your brains in this episode. If you are just signed up for your PRO, ASCAP or BMI in the US, and you are not collecting on your music publishing in any other way, you are missing out on revenue. So if your music is being covered, sold, streamed, any of the above, which is most of us uh, or most of you, then you are missing out on revenue. And this is the number one missing revenue stream I see with artists of all ages. I met an independent artist last year, and she told me she was she had just landed a big big sync placement. And we're going to get into sync later in this episode, um, a big sync with Tommy Hilfiger. And I said, Oh, how, how are you collecting on your publishing? She said, Oh, I'm with BMI. Um, so she was missing out on on a ton of revenue. I did a consulting call with a couple of guys who were probably like 50 years old. I asked the same question. Oh, I'm with ASCAP. So they were missing out on their publishing revenue. So. How do you collect on that? Song trust. There's a few ways you can do it, but I'm a huge advocate for song trust because back in the day, um, really just in the 20th century, you would have to sign your rights away to a music publishing to get that extra money. Song trust has completely democratized music publishing. I mean, most people here know how to use DistroKid, TuneCore, CD Baby. That has totally democratized music distribution. which is what we're going to talk about in the next episode. Song Trust has done that for the other right, for the songwriting right. So anyone can sign up for Song Trust and you're going to keep, and you own all your rights. You're going to keep 85% of your royalties. They're going to get a 15% commission. Um, You can get out of it. You might have to be with them for a year. Don't quote me on that. I know you can, I believe you can get out of it within three months after that. If you want to move on to a music publisher um, but those terms are very similar to an admin publishing deal, which is something I'm gonna explain later in this episode. And I I said this uh, in season one in the podcast before Downtown was a sponsor. Um, but Song Trust was founded by the principals at Downtown Music Publishing. Um they publish artists like John Lennon's catalog, Image and Heap, J. Cole. Um, and so you have this you have access to the same publishing mechanisms that. That downtown does. So long story short, hopefully we know what music publishing is now. And to collect on it, you sign up for your PRO, ASCAP or BMI in the US, and you have to have a publishing administrator in addition to that. And I recommend SongTrust. Now, I'll just explain why so many artists, so many songwriters are missing that revenue stream. It's actually completely understandable. So many of you know, when you go to sign up for ASCAP or BMI, they say you write a song 100%. They are going to divide your 100% song into a writer's share and a publisher's share. And this is an old school 20th century thing that I hope goes away someday, but that's just how it is. So again, if I sign up as a songwriter, they're going to say, okay, you're Emily White, the songwriter. Um. And then it's going to nudge you. And so that's going to be my writer's share. So 50% of my 100% songwriting royalties are going to go there uh, for my PRO. And then it's going to nudge me and say, oh, you should create a publishing designee. How about Emily White Publishing or Emily White Music? So that's why when I talk to so many songwriters and I say, how are you collecting on your music publishing? They say, oh, I'm with ASCAP. Oh, I'm with BMI because they've set up you know, me, uh, we have an artist named me here, me music, right? Or wave chapelle music or the girl music. Um, and so it's completely understandable that that's confusing. So again, to reiterate, hopefully we know what music publishing is. It's going out and working your songs and then collecting all the music or all the money that's owed to it. And to get that money, you have to sign up for your performing rights organization within two and a half years of releasing music, so ASCAP or BMI in the U.S., and then you also have to sign up for a publishing administrator like SongTrust. And again, I'll give you some other options later in this episode, but SongTrust is the one that's open and available to everyone. Um, Julia can answer a lot of questions on this, but does that all make sense? Okay, cool. Um, well, I'm super excited to introduce um, our guest today. Um, we can bring on Julia. Julia Julia Pernicone is the director of Copyright. Hey, Julia. Just reading your title here. Um, so Julia Pernicone is the director of Copyright at SongTrust and Downtown Music Holdings. Welcome, Julia.
1: Thank you so much.
0: Yeah, how's cold L.A.? <laughs> i'm sorry
1: i complained
0: <laughs> you're allowed i get it. it's like you know it is surprising when you go there and you have to be reminded it's the desert it does actually get very cold at night yes. so i hear you well thank you so much for your time i don't know if you heard any of that beginning part it's okay if you didn't i did i did <laughs> okay cool did that make sense is there anything you want to add to that or subtract no i think it. that's
1: really perfect practical advice um, because it can get obviously very complex talking about publishing and who's responsible for collecting on, uh, you know, royalties for certain rights and all of these different things. But at the end of the day, as a songwriter, that's the practical information you need to know. You need to be affiliated with a PRO. You need a publishing administrator to collect your, global performance and mechanical royalties. And that's really all you need to know. You can get deeper if you want, but you don't have to.
0: <laughs> no, you're totally right. And there are, you know, there are entire books out on every chapter in my book, including, of, of course, the publishing chapter. And as I talked to you before this episode, my goal is, which I'm just going to keep repeating, is I want you all to understand what music publishing is and learn how to collect all your money for your songwriting. If you want to go buy an entire book on music publishing and learn every sub revenue stream within publishing, have at it. But again, I just want you to understand what it is, get all your money for it, and not be scared of that or um, or spooked, as you said earlier, Julia.
1: Totally. Yeah.
0: So let's dig in. Did you begin your career and journey in music at, NYU, and at NYU's music business program, or were you doing stuff in, in high school or anything before that?
1: So in high school, I started writing and perform. I had been singing forever, but I started writing music and performing in bands in high school. And so that was kind of where I started making the decision, you know, what am I going to do with the rest of my life? Where do I go to school? What do I study? Um, and music business seemed like... The practical option, um, and you know, there's a lot of people. Truly, if you want to be an artist and you want to pursue that, you absolutely should. But it did end up being a practical option for me. Um, so yeah, that that's really where you know all of my knowledge of the the business side of the music industry came from, um, and you know, it still helps me today, even in my like personal creative endeavors. That's
0: great. I swear every time I talk to someone at SongTrust or have a guest speaker in one of my college classes or I had Molly on, um, you know, in season one, you all are musicians and songwriters, it seems like, which isn't really a question. It's just a comment. There
1: are a lot of us. Yeah, yeah, there's there's a lot of us. And actually, I should also mention, you came and spoke to my college class <laughs> when I was at NYU.
0: <laughs> nice. See it all comes full circle,
1: but I, I really love
0: when yeah, I, yeah. you know, when I invite someone from Songtrust uh, to speak in a situation like this. I, I feel like you all can really empathize with the songwriters that you're working with.
1: Definitely, I think one of the great things about the people at Songtrust in downtown is that we are really, really passionate about songwriters, advocating for songwriters, making sure they get everything they're owed, making sure they're educated and understand what their rights are. Um, And I think a lot of that comes from all of us having been in that boat in some way or another, um, or, you know, a lot of us. 100%.
0: So was your first professional experience outside of the classroom in artist management? Like, what was your first internship? Yes.
1: Um, Well, while I was in college, I started managing, which I will say with quotes, um, bands that my friends were in. That's great. um, Which really was more of me booking shows for them, which I'm sure you have or will get into this at some point, that really a manager should not be a booking agent. I don't know if we'll cover the talent
0: agency. They're not going to like that I'm talking over (laughs) you, but I don't know if we will cover the talent agency act, but very good NYU. Good job.
1: (laughs) Right. So, but in my case, it didn't really matter. So I was booking shows for my friends and like weighing in on their release strategies. Um, and that was fun to just kind of like get my hands dirty and start you know thinking about marketing and yeah. and you know helping bands uh you know create and and release things and play shows um but my first uh official internship was with um Garland Jeffries who is like a roots americana artist mm-hmm. um he had like a super long career took some time off to raise his daughter. And then he came back with a new album. His wife was managing him and I would go to their apartment one day a week and help her list shows online and, you know, send information to venues that where he was playing on tour, um, do some social media stuff. So that was really, that was my first internship.
0: I mean, that's management people. And we're going to dig into more of that on, on the final episode, but um, I, I, Understand why you put your management experience prior to that in air quotes, but I'm so glad you did that. And I've taught artist management at NYU. And look, if there's an enthusiastic student, especially if they're studying music business and on a professional path and they want to help you out, um, that's awesome. Like I was in college when I started working with the Dresden Dolls, you know, like I think it's important to be on that professional path and not be like a fan or a sycophant or whatever. But I met too many students. Um, too many students when I was teaching at NYU who were like, well, I want to manage, but I don't think I'm ready yet. And again, I don't want to get off on too much of a tangent on this, but I think sometime, I don't think we often have a stereotype in our brain of what managers do or what they're going to be like. And the old white guy on the 50th floor that you might want to be your manager actually might be super busy, have kids, have a million clients. So if you have Julia hustling for you, you know, booking shows, who wouldn't want Julia to book you a show in New York city, right? Like, um, so anyway, I think, I think that's awesome. I, I love that you did that. And what did, so, you know, what did that first internship in artist management teach you?
1: It really taught me that nobody totally knows what they're doing. Um, This was obviously a really small operation and this was a really successful artist. You know, he was playing shows globally. Um, He, you know, had been on major labels before and they were just doing it themselves, him and his wife and, you know, contacts they had made over the years. Um, and you know, she had never worked in the music industry before. She was just familiar with being, you know, being married to this artist for all of these years. Um, so I really learned that and anybody can do it. Yeah. (laughs) You know, you put the time in, you can figure it out
0: hundred percent. And again, we'll go over management more in the final episode, but Julia is right. You don't need a degree to be a manager. You don't need a license to be a manager. Um, and it, and a lot of spouses are managers because they care and it's, it's a lot of work. So that makes, and that I, you know, I've had experiences like that too. So I know it gave you firsthand knowledge of what it's like to be a working artist, even when it's someone international like that. So from there you interned at downtown music publishing. What drew you to interning at downtown?
1: So I had taken a publishing class in school. Um, I thought it was going to be super boring. Everyone had told me, Oh, you know, publishing it's like numbers, it's math. Um, but as a songwriter and, you know, even not, I think all of us really did find that it was a super interesting class. Um, the professor was Jennifer Blakeman, who, you know, had a long career as an artist and then mm-hmm. in music publishing, and she just made it super fun. And as a songwriter and someone who's really passionate about, you know, not just music, but the craft of songwriting and a fan of songwriters, um, I was like, that's, that's going to be, you know, what I do next. Wow. So um, I booked into downtown um, because I was really into the catalog. Um things have changed because they've sold a a, quite a big portion of the catalog at this point. But at that time, um, they had one Direction's whole catalog. They had Antonina Armato, um, Bonnie McKee, all of these pop songwriters that I personally am obsessed with. Um, I just love like a beautiful crisp pop song. And they had so many of those songs in the catalog. So I was like, that's the place for me. And, um, So I interviewed and I interned on the sync team, which really just um, consisted of listening to a lot of music, tagging it with descriptive metadata so that the sync team could, you know, search the catalog for um, songs uh, for different briefs that would come in looking for like a specific mood or sound. Um, But that was really my first experience in music publishing. And um, I pretty much did not look back from there. And obviously I have returned to downtown all these years later. So it was a good experience.
0: A hundred percent. Um, we're going to talk about sync later in this episode, but can you tell us what a, what a sync is?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So it's the synchronization of music to a visual. So when you see music in an advertisement, a film, a movie, a video game, all of that is sync usages and it requires its own license. Um, both on the composition side and the master side. And actually, SYNC is one of my favorite things about the music industry or publishing specifically because it's one of the places where compositions are valued more or less the same or sometimes even more than a master. Um, For example, you might see a commercial with um, a cover of Mm -hmm. Imagine by John Lennon, for example. Um, and in that case, you know, downtown would have to clear the composition side of that, but um the label wouldn't have to clear the the master side because for that use, just having the song there is more important than the actual recording. Um so I, I love that about sync just because I'm a songwriter freak.
0: That's great. I mean, let's break that down for a second. So If you get paid, if you get offered $1,000 for a sync, we talked about the two main rights in music, $500 is going to go to the recording and $500 is going to go to the songwriting. So just to reiterate um, what Julia said, fun fact, a lot of times you'll hear a really famous song on a commercial and that's, so you can be like the music nerd, um, I'm sure you already are, but the music industry nerd, you know, to your families and the people around you and what's often happening there is the label the 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 entity that owns the recording is charging a really high rate and the ad can't afford it or they decide not to do it and maybe the publishers is probably still charging a lot for the songwriter but not quite as much for that super famous song so they might have an artist cover that i i had that happen to a young band um i think they got maybe 50 grand or something to cover donovan's mellow yellow for a mellow yellow ad that was probably actually a little too low but for an up-and-coming band they were psyched to do um that recording. So thank you for that that reminder and that lesson, Julia. So after your internship at Downtown, you completed additional internships at AAM, at Domino Music Publishing, you worked on the live and talent buying side at the legendary Blue Note in New York, as well as Arcade Songs. So did interning at other publishing companies like Domino and Arcade teach you additional perspectives on music publishing?
1: Yeah, totally. Um, So Like I said, at Downtown, I was doing mostly sync. Um, At Domino and Arcade, it was definitely more on the admin side of things. And um, Arcade specifically, um, while they did more creative services, their um, admin was done by Downtown Music Publishing, um, which was just a coincidence that I had ended up there. Um, But I got to kind of see the interaction between... You know, the more creative side of a publisher with their admin, um, seeing sync licenses come through, like looking for approvals and, uh, you know, confirming splits and those sorts of things, which were were parts of, of publishing that I had not gotten to see in my previous internship. So it was nice to see that interaction.
0: I love that. And so when we're talking about sync, that's a perfect example of going out and working your music publishing. And when we're talking about admin, that's, that's short for administration, which means collecting all the money. So those are literal examples of what I was trying to get across to you at, at the beginning of this. So... Did you notice how music publishing was incorporated at venues with regard to performing rights organizations while at the Blue Note um because I feel like the live sector is often separate from songwriting and music publishing, even though a core revenue stream within music publishing is derived from venues. I mean, maybe not, not to answer the question for you cause you're on the talent buying side, but I, you know, I used to tour manage, so I know the live sector really well, but I think your perspective is really unique that you were working at this legendary venue, but then have all this music publishing experience, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah. The, the funny thing is the experiences for me specifically did not interact at all. Um, I, and you know, that might just have been the nature of my internship yeah. at Blue Note. I was mostly um, reading through contracts um, and and making sure that like the the normal kind of rules of the venue would match up with what the artists were asking for, um, which was actually a great experience just reading contracts and kind of getting used to legal jargon and that sort of thing. Um, but it wasn't related to, to the publishing at all. Um, and I really took that internship because most of what I had done had been in publishing up until that point. I was right about to graduate and I was like, I should probably do something else <laughs> um, instead of putting all my eggs in one basket. Um, so it was a really great experience. But yeah, it, it was it was completely different from my, my prior uh, internships in publishing. And uh, Justin Kalifowitz, who, um who is the founder of, of Downtown, uh, actually said in a Q&A while I was interning there that um, you could work in the music industry for 10 years and not know anything about publishing. But if you work in publishing for two years, you can learn everything about the music industry. Mm. I don't know if I know everything about the music industry, but I do see what he's saying because publishing really does interact with every single sector of the industry. Whereas I was working at a you know, talent agency just reviewing contracts all day long and I would never even know that publishing existed.
0: You know a lot, lady. Um, between working in talent <laughs> buying at a famous venue, working at all these publishing companies, working in management, there's a lot of people that that don't have that experience. Um, but you know, when you were reviewing those contracts at the Blue Note, and this is a good thing to pay attention to when you guys are playing live. I used to see this as a tour manager, and again, we'll get into this in. Um, you know, the live episode on sustainable touring. But, you know, there's expenses, right, to run a venue. So maybe you're getting paid, I, I keep making up this number, but $1,000 for a show plus 85% after expenses. And those expenses are going to be like your catering, towels that often don't get used, so I would get that knocked down or whatever. But you would see an ASCAP or BMI fee because, again, a venue like No Studios where where we are right now pays X amount to ASCAP, BMI, CSAC, and GMR is the other invite-only one I didn't mention. And they're going to take the fees that they pay to those companies for your songwriting and divide it equally amongst their shows. So you might see like a $50, you know, PRO fee. Um, So it's on there. It's on those contracts at the Blue Note, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. So was your first job when you graduated college at The Orchard? It was, Yes. So what is The Orchard and what did you do there?
1: Sure. So The Orchard is a distribution company, similar to CD Baby, TuneCore, district that you mentioned earlier, um, but you know a little more exclusive. Mm-hmm. Um, I was working in the video services department, um, specifically rights management. So what that meant is um, I was reviewing the catalog in YouTube's content management system mm-hmm. and resolving conflicts between the orchard shares and other labels. So, you know, if we had a deal with a label to represent their catalog on YouTube, you know, for the world, and another label was claiming that they um, represented it in one or more territories, I would work with that uh, other label and our client to, you know, figure out who should be collecting on their behalf on YouTube.
0: That's great. I love that. And we're going to talk about distribution in the next episode. We'll talk about CD Baby and the Orchard and and your options there. So you then moved on to Song Trust, I believe, from the Orchard, mm-hmm. back into the downtown family. So what is Song Trust? I, I tried to give my um, ex- explanation, but you're the you're the real expert. What's Song Trust?
1: So, like you said, it really democratizes music publishing, we are a publishing administrator. Um, We represent songwriters and their catalogs um, globally and collect royalties on their behalf. So what that means is uh, we register our clients' works with PROs and mechanical collection societies um, in territories all around the world, um, collect the royalties that are generated from their usages in those territories, and then distribute them those
0: royalties to the clients. I love it. And there's so many songwriters I've encouraged to sign up with song trust who have come back to me and been like, Oh my gosh, I had all this money in Brazil. Oh my gosh. I had, I mean, you've heard this like times a thousand, I'm sure. But, um, yeah, that's not really a question, but just, I love it. Go sign (laughs) up, you know, for sure. So, you've worked your way up at the company through positions in publishing operations, as an account associate, to, copy, to copyright management, which led to a management role in the company, where you're now working as director of copyright at Song Trust and Downtown Music Holdings. What did each step in your career teach you? I know that's a lot.
1: So, my experience has been, I think, unique um, because when I started at Songtrust, it was in a very different place from where it is today. Yeah. Um, when I started, there were a team of three of us in publishing operations, wow. um, and then about ten developers who were building our internal our website and our internal tools, um, and then one person in royalties. And um, we worked mostly separate from downtown music publishing at the time. So publishing operations, we were really doing everything. I specifically was answering our, you know, health emails, um, talking to uh, potential clients, asking, you know, answering their questions, uh, running our blog our Twitter, really a little bit of everything, um, as well as, you know, copyright functions, sending letters of direction to PROs, um, you know, resolving conflicts. We can get into all that kind of stuff later if you want. Um, And because the company grew so fast, I was able to really learn a lot in a short period of time. Um, One of the kind of major changes that happened over these last seven years is that we started bringing on businesses. Um, You know, SongTrust was really created for the independent songwriter to be able to collect the publishing royalties that were being generated from the uses uh, that were coming from them being able to distribute music independently. Um, But we started opening it up to, you know, businesses who kind of similar to arcade songs, maybe do their own creative services, but need someone to handle the admin or, you know, they're okay handling the admin in the U S and Canada, but they're not set up to collect worldwide. One of the things about the uh, song trust is that we have entities in Pretty much every territory around the world, Mm -hmm. um, which allow us to be able to affiliate with um, performing rights organizations and mechanical collection societies in each of these territories, which is a really really hard thing to do. You basically have to you know create an LLC in every territory, sign all the paperwork. Sometimes you need physical people on the ground, and um, so that's the thing you know that that we have in place that a lot of publishers can't, or it would be a lot of, take a lot of time and effort and money to do. So um, we started bringing on these kind of uh, bigger, more sophisticated clients um, and bringing them on uh, with different terms. So the typical Songtrist deal is a uh, one year term worldwide, 15% commission deal. Mm-hmm. And our system was set up to handle just that. Mm-hmm. Then we started doing these kind of, deals with territory restrictions or, you know, different term lengths and different commissions. And um, we really grew into a a much more, you know, traditional publisher, a much more sophisticated company. Um, And so it required me to learn a lot very, very quickly, Um, but also, you know, gave me a lot of responsibility. And especially being someone who kind of came in at the real, very small beginnings of the company, Mm -hmm. That historical context is really helpful for me now, um, you know, when we bring new people uh, onto the team to kind of say, well, this is the reason why we were doing such and such in this sort of way. And these are the problems we've encountered in the past doing these sorts of things. And this is how we should, you know, attack this challenge going forward. Um, so for the most part, I never really left the copyright side of things I mentioned I did a lot of client services and, and mm-hmm. things like that, um, which actually I found to be one of the fastest ways to learn is to answer people's questions. Um, mm-hmm. Once you have to kind of you know take a person's inquiry, understand what information it is to you know, help them on their way and then explain it back to them, you can learn something very, very quickly. Um, but I always was kind of working on this, on um, focused on the copyright side of things. Um, it just, the company had to kind of catch up and, and bring on people for all of these different departments. So now the copyright team focuses just on song registration um, with our pay source partners around the world and digital services that we work with, like YouTube and Facebook and uh, TikTok and all of that. Um, but yeah, it, it, it was a lot in a short period of time. <laughs> and uh, it's, been, it's been a lot of fun
0: it's so true about education. So I expect everyone here and everyone watching and listening to go tell your songwriting friends, uh, explain to them what music publishing is and how to collect on it. That that really is the best way. And what I love about your career, and I think is an excellent lesson for, um, you know, those coming up and aspiring to be in the music industry is you worked your way up. And I, you know, think it's really important when you climb up that ladder to not miss any rungs, right? Cuz like in when I see people I mean Justin, your founder, and I do talk about this sometime. I've got some story. I have a book out called Interning 101, and there's a story in it about a downtown intern, but Justin is not quoted on that. But when people try to skip the rungs, right, and maybe go hang out with him instead of you or you know whoever, um, you're going to fall. You're going to miss information. So I, I really love your career path, how you worked your way up at the company, um, and you know every nook and cranny. Not really a question, just a comment for... Aspiring industry people, but you touched on something really important that came up in our business affairs episode, um, which is uh, a conflict at a PRO. So, um, you know, someone asked, like, "Well, if I co-write a song and I submit my forty percent to ASCAP, and but you know, the other person submits, you know, seventy percent or whatever." I guess my question, my question is. Why do you think those conflicts happen more often than not? There's obviously a few reasons, but in, in your experience, what do you see?
1: The annoying thing about publishing is that there is not one place where all of the information exists. Yeah. Um, PROs and mechanical collection societies do rely on each individual rights holder's um, information and those don't always match. It could be because of a disagreement between songwriters or a misunderstanding. It could be things that have gotten lost in translation, especially when it comes to um, older catalogs, like legacy Mm -hmm. catalogs, um, or, you know, songs that have changed hands many times. So, you know, let's say you start writing a song with a group of people, you don't finish it. You don't do anything with it. A few months or years later, you kind of bring it back again and, and finish it in a new way. And, you know, maybe the communication with all of the people doesn't, you know, match up and you don't all have a a good idea of, of what your splits are. There are plenty of reasons, but basically each publisher delivers the most complete information that they have to the collection society. um, And then that collection society has to reconcile it. And depending on how good a job the publisher or songwriter has done in getting that complete information, it's likely that that can conflict. And, um, you know, something I tell our clients all the time is um, the collection society isn't going to take our word for a writer we don't control. So for example, if you and I write a song together, Emily, um, and we've agreed on 50 50 and you have a publisher and I have a publisher, um, BMI, for example, is not going to take my publisher's word for what your share is supposed to be. They're going to wait to hear that from you. Um, and so if you, Got really mad at me and told your publisher, "No, I have a hundred percent of this song, <laughs> and that's what your publisher believe, uh, delivers." We had we get a conflict.
0: <laughs> well, it goes back to what what it sounds like. It goes back to what we are talking about in our get your business affairs episode together. Communication is queen. Right? So that's why you have to set up that process before you hit the studio, whether it's with your producers, your players, your mom, anyone that's going to enter the studio. And if you wrote all the songs, let them know that. And in, you know, in my experience, my advice would be, hey, get, you know, get together, coffee, Zoom, whatever. I wrote all these songs, you know, have that meeting before you hit the studio But if you feel that you contribute to the songwriting process at any point throughout the recording, you have to tell me after that session, because it sounds like the other thing that's happening is people making assumptions, right? So six months down the road, registering their song or a producer, um, you know, registering, uh, you know, for some of the publishing and maybe that was never discussed. So that's why you have to talk about these things, because all it's going to do is delay your payments, right?
1: Yes, absolutely. Um, when a work is in conflict, nobody gets paid, um, so nobody wants the works to be in conflict.
0: <laughs> there you go. So communication is queen, everyone. So one last, actually, I do want to say one other thing, and then I have one last question before we open it open it up to the audience for quest, for any questions for you. Um, Song trust does not pitch to sync. We should also make that clear. I'm going to talk about sync um, after we sadly let you go. Um, but SongTrust just does your publishing administration. So if you're landing syncs on your own, which I'm going to give you some options to do, that's, you know, you're working the song, but SongTrust would be your publishing administrator to collect all the money
1: for you and them. Yes, (laughs) and we do do, um, you know, non-exclusive licensing. So should a request come through to us as your administrator um, we will reach out to you as the client and say, Hey, we got this request. Do you want us to handle it on your behalf? And in that case, we would, you know, negotiate with the licensee, um, collect the fee on your behalf, take our commission and pay it out to you. Um, or if this was something you wanted to negotiate on your own, you could do that separately as well. And then we would collect any royalties that may come from, uh, you know, it being broadcast on television or what have you.
0: That's awesome. I did not know that. So if song trust is your publishing administrator and they get a sync request, this is me saying this, not Julia, let them handle it because they know the market rate. You don't, I don't. Let the experts handle it. They're going to get a commission on that too. So it's in their best interest to get you um, the most money possible. And I've met way too many artists and songwriters that just accept the fee. I'm like, no, flip it to Scott Cresto or now flip it to SongTrust. You know, like if if they're willing to do that on your behalf, that's awesome. So definitely do that in my opinion. Um, Okay, so last question for me. What resources can songwriters take advantage of at at SongTrust to expand their networks and knowledge for their careers?
1: Yeah, we have a really awesome blog, in my unbiased opinion, um, and help center. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, you know, a lot of uh, content in there that's song trust specific that is useful if you are a client. Um, but there's also a lot of just kind of general publishing knowledge. Um, the blog also breaks down a lot of a lot of those really specific topics that that we kind of briefly mentioned. Um, so if you do really want to get deep into um, you know, what micro sync is yeah. or um, you know, mechanical licensing, um, we do have all of that content. Also our marketing team does um webinars and and different uh presentations all the time. Um I've done a few. Other awesome people at the company have done them as well. So I definitely recommend, you know, keeping up with the Song Trust social media. Um, Signing up for emails and all of that so that you can hear about when those are happening. Um, we're on TikTok, you know, all of that kind of stuff. And also, I wanted to mention just um, at the beginning, you were talking about your PROs. And um, your PRO likely also offers some sort of educational content, webinars, mm-hmm. um, you know, classes, workshops, those sorts of things. Um, and Um, I specifically, as a songwriter, I'm with BMI um, and in New York, BMI has an awesome creative team. Uh, They put on events. um, They do uh, this thing called speed dating for songwriters where they, you know, introduce songwriters to each other. And um, it's a really great community to get involved in both for, you know, learning uh, and then also for networking and meeting other songwriters. So um, I would encourage you really look into what your PRO might have going on. And they they do things like that, um, ASCAP as well in yep. all different cities across the US. So that, definitely take a look.
0: That is so true. I mean, I was really focused on the song trust and you you guys really do have a great email list. I've spoken at some of those conferences and webinars. You do such an awesome job. But that's such a good point about the PROs as well. You know, like ASCAP also has a um Film scoring boot camp that you can apply for. You know, like see how these are resources and not something to be scared of. Um, so I love that. Thank you so much for pointing it out. Um, all right. So let's open it up to you all. Um, Julia has a wealth of music publishing experience. Do we have any questions for Julia? Yeah. And you can stay seated. Okay, for sure.
1: Um, how's it going, Julia? Um, my question is and do I, where do I look? sorry Camera. oh right here okay. okay cool um so my question is um, so i'm a, a artist songwriter myself um i have a, a older song that was featured on like sorry, um, Sandra, what's your name oh I, i'm uh, wave Chappelle is my artist name um, i have a older song that was featured on like espn and like a couple commercials and stuff and I wanted to know, like, about song trust. Is it ever like too late, like, because that song is old? Like, is that just like a wash, or like, if I do go through song trust, is it like still possible to uh, find those royalties? All so, you, Julia. Emily was correct. <laughs> yeah. um, Emily was correct in that um, typically. Especially on the performing rights side of things, uh, societies will hang on to money for about two to three years before putting it into that black box. Um, on the mechanical side, which would be more uh, for streaming uses, it some times could be a little bit longer. So it really depends not on when the song came out, but when it was used in those um, commercials and and on ESPN. Um, ideally. If you were already with uh, affiliated with a PRO and you provided your um, IPI number, which is like a, song, a songwriter identification number to whatever licensing company um, did that sync for you, um, the network or the licensing company, sometimes can vary, would have submitted that use to your PRO um, and you, could have received those performance royalties already. Um, if you were with Songtrust, you would just inform us of that use, and we would make sure that that um, cue sheet, which is just the the documentation of the the usage on television, that that got submitted to the PRO, um, and that that uh, that was being paid out directly. But to answer your question. I would say if the usage happened within the last two to three years, it's likely that you can still collect on it. Anything before that is probably gone already.
0: Which breaks my heart, although you seem young, so hopefully you can go get it. Julia, do you think that'll ever change? Because I think that is so messed up.
1: It is really crazy. Um, I have no idea if it'll change. I do think there is a lot of effort to find unclaimed Mm -hmm. money we do a lot of work on the copyright side of things um we receive unclaimed reports from most of our society partners where they just say like hey here's a bunch of money we have and this is the song information is it yours (laughs) um and you know we match as much of it as we can to our catalog um so that we can get it paid out um but in terms of you know how long societies will decide to hold on to that money i have no idea if that'll ever change
0: Well, let's work to change that. I've decided. I'll talk to Future of Music about that. Um, You know, I was interviewing a manager um, from one of my college classes last semester, and he had a songwriter um, with us that was like Jake Tapper's theme song on CNN. And he, he noticed in the PRO statements that the money went way down and they contacted CNN and CNN was like so short staffed that the intern wasn't filling out the Q sheet. So that's a reminder too, like that. That's a goldmine if you get some sort of recurring sync, like the guy who wrote the baseline for Seinfeld's um, theme song has made so much money. Um, but you got it. You have to really check your ASCAP and BMI statements because it could be one kid, you know, at the network, not filling out the cue sheet. Um, I'm super excited that we have an online question from one of our viewers at Volume. Um, I think I'll have you read that. If that's, yeah, no problem. Here you go. I'll go into three, don't worry.
1: All right, so we have uh, Jody P twenty eight who asked: uh, Is there a time limit on the publishing side? For example, the song trust side. I'm speaking of the two and a half year requirement.
0: That's pretty much what we just talked about. But you can reiterate that, Julia.
1: Yeah. So you know, we will collect for anyone that is currently our client. So you know, when we talk about those unclaimed reports. Um, We're looking for anything in there that matches our current catalog. So it doesn't actually matter when that money was earned. If you're our client today, we're going to collect any money that's sitting out there for you um, and pay it out to you immediately. We won't collect any money. SongTrust won't collect any money that doesn't uh, belong to our current clients. So there's no really no like risk of us hanging on to money and not giving it to you. Um, But if it is out there and available for us, to get we will and so yeah it's still about that two and a half years um on the performance side at least in the U.S. and sometimes a little bit longer on the mechanical side
0: thank you yes come talking into the mic please hi Julia I'm an artist in Milwaukee my name's Shlee and I have a question I signed up for a pro back before I knew what publishing even was and they require you to do the self-publishing thing so I was like okay yeah sure I'm gonna do that but then when I signed up for song trust it does collect on my behalf is that conflicting in like the system or does it know that that's like the same person were you late so okay sorry to interrupt yeah go ahead Julia we covered that so you can listen back to the episode but go ahead Julia (laughs)
1: It does not conflict. Um, When you sign up for SongTrust, we'll ask you for your legal name and IPI number, which is that songwriter identification number. And then we'll also ask for your publishing entity name and that entity's IPI number if you have one. So um, in your case, you would just give us the name and IPI of your publishing entity and SongTrust would collect on behalf of that entity. If you don't have an entity, SongTrust will just be the publishing entity. Um, But either way, it would not And truthfully, it doesn't actually make a difference. Once you have song trust collecting, you could or could not have your own um, personal publishing entity and it wouldn't make a difference.
0: I'm going to reiterate that point because I really, really want people to understand it. So when you sign up for your PRO, which is you have to do. That's a very important first step. If you are just collecting on your music publishing that way, you are missing out on money. And that's, and you explained perfectly why that's confusing, because I don't know if you remember this, when you signed up, you're you as a songwriter, and then it encouraged you to create a publishing designee. So of course you would think like, oh, well, are you with BMI or ASCAP? Oh yeah. So ASCAP collects my publishing and that is like music publishing is the number one missing revenue stream i see among songwriters because of that songwriters of all ages and tons of experience so sign up for your pro and then sign up for song trust or another public publishing administrator but song trust truly is the best one that is open to everyone does that make sense okay yeah no problem
1: yeah and to yeah please go to ahead clarify just on on what you are missing so yeah. At your home PRO at ASCAP, you would be collecting the publisher share of your performance royalties. What you're missing on is then the mechanical side of things. So that comes from streaming um, mainly, which is huge um, in today's, you know, industry landscape. Um, And then also your international, both performance and mechanical. So, you know, specifically within your PRO, whether or not you have song trust doesn't necessarily make a difference. It's all of the additional revenue streams that you're missing
0: out on. And that's why when I'm talking to friends who are songwriters, I'm doing a consulting call or whatever. I ask them how they're collecting on their publishing. They say ASCAP. I'm like, here's SongTrust. Please go sign up. And then they come back to me a few months later and are like, oh my gosh, I had thousands of dollars sitting there. So um, yeah, that's the number one missing revenue stream I see in people. I want you guys to understand what music publishing is and learn how to collect on it. And collecting on it is your PRO plus song trust or another publishing administrator. Okay. Yeah. Hello, um, I'm Israel Perez, an artist designer from Milwaukee. Um, but my question is, I recently saw a dope interview with an artist, Vince Staples, where he said he like intentionally made a project for sync. And I guess my question is, mm-hmm. would you recommend doing that, or just create your art? And if someone resonates with it and likes it this thing so happen or what do you think about that i guess
1: love it this is a great question um i it depends it depends on how you want to spend your time how you want to make your money um i do think it is a great idea um there's a lot of money in sync and a lot of money for like the everyday songwriter, um, for example, in my creative pursuits, um, I have an artist project. We don't do much, you know. We're not a big deal. Um, we do have um, a representative who does pitch for sync for us. We have gotten only really small usages from the music we've put out as artists, like a you know a fitness app here or there, a couple hundred dollars we've also written music with sync specifically in mind. And it it is kind of like a niche thing, what we're doing, but you know, when you see like an Apple commercial um, or like a cosmetics commercial or something, and there's that like really, you know, like synth horns, like really energetic, lots of like yelling, that kind of genre. We've done things specifically in that vein with like very general lyrics. These are, you know, kind of themes that um, come up when you're talking about, Uh, music for sync. The music that we've written with that specifically in mind, we've had a lot more success actually getting those sync placements that are higher budget because they're from these brands um, that are doing commercials. So if you want to pursue sync specifically as a revenue source, I think that could be a good option um, because you can kind of cater your music to those usages without touching your artist persona um, if they don't match. Um, For example, like if you write like really moody, dark music, but you want to make a bunch of money from sync with this like super high energy poppy stuff, you might want to keep those separate and the sync world doesn't discriminate based on like, Oh, you don't have a lot of Instagram followers. We're not going to use this song. So if that makes sense for you and you really want to focus on sync, um, that might be a really good option. But if you're, you know, kind of the music that you're naturally making as an artist is very syncable or can work in in those instances, there's no reason to separate it. Um, again, a, a, a brand or a licensee is not going to, sometimes they're looking for like a, a specific artist and like a persona and a, a face and an image to go with the music they're syncing, but most times they're not. So whether it's, you know, part of your artist project or it's a separate thing I don't think it really matters it just matters how you want to spend your time and um, I will say you know my artist project is not my main focus so if I take time away from it to do this sync stuff it's not really hurting me either way um, it might if you really want to throw hundred of your time and energy behind your artist project it may take you know away from that to spend time working on sync stuff so it really just depends on how you want to spend your time how you want to make your money um, and, and what, you know, your values are there.
0: And you can write and record on your own, I assume, right? Like give me a head nod. Yeah. So also when you're working with a sync pitching company, which again, I'm going to get into next, they often send out briefs like, Hey, we're looking for a Lizzo replacement or a foster the people replacement because this indie film can't afford Lizzo or whatever, you know, or this, you know, if you want to write for this picture, they're going to be looking for these type of tracks. So that's another area you can really take advantage of. And then like Julia said, then you have those songs, you have those assets and recordings ready to go. Yeah. Anyone else? Yeah, Eli. We'll pass the mic.
1: Thanks. Um, Okay. Uh, Thanks for being here, Julia. Um, Yeah, I was just going to ask, I think you said you were just about to get into it but if you wanted to just make music for sync like where do you put that like I don't just like all I know is distro kid honestly that's all I know I so if I was just going to make like little instrumentals for like pharmaceutical commercials where do they hear that
0: And another just, great question. I'll just say quickly, we're going to talk about distribution in the next episode, which that's what Distro kit is. That doesn't really have anything to do with this, but take it
1: away, Julia. So I would recommend looking into sync licensing companies. They're, you know, a publisher can do it for you. Um, so if you are you know not song trust, but if you're shopping around to to publishers, for deals, they can definitely pitch that music for you. Um, but there are a lot of companies that just do sync licensing. Um, I'm trying to think of some examples now. Zinc in New York is one of them.
0: Uh, I'm gonna go. I'm sorry to interrupt. I'm gonna go through all of this and list companies like Zinc. Keep keep going. But we're gonna dig in on this. Perfect. Yeah. I mean, if you yeah, have any so other, a, yeah, a company
1: go. like that. Yeah would would be a great um, a great place to start. Also, networking and meeting other songwriters who do that type of work so you can kind of get in on maybe a a pitch they're working on um, or like a brief that they've been sent um, so you can kind of start making those relationships. I think that's the best place to do it because for what you're talking about, it's less likely that, you know, someone's going to hear something on Spotify and say, oh, yeah, we're going to want to put this in that, you know, drug commercial or whatever it is. So it's really about the relationships.
0: Yeah. And I would say, I mean, this isn't a pharmaceutical company, but go to a Milwaukee film event, start meeting producers, music supervisors, film folks there. And also if you're interested in scoring, um, which it sounds like you are. Any other questions for Julia? All right. Well, Julia, thank you so much for your time tonight. I deeply appreciate your wisdom, your knowledge, and I love that you're a songwriter as well.
1: Thank you so, so much for having me. And thank you to everybody who asked questions. This was so much fun. Absolutely. Let's give it up for Julia.
0: (laughs) Love it. Thanks, lady. We'll talk to you soon. Bye. Thanks so much. No problem. Okay, so now we're going to get into the second half of our episode. Uh, Actually, before I do that, um, I do want to share additional music publishing options for you. So, and just kind of educate you on that. So, like I said... I'm very pro-song trust because we can all sign up for that, and then you have access to downtown music publishing's uh, world-class collection um, systems and mechanisms. In fact, Julia mentioned their founder, Justin Kalifowitz, who's a friend of mine. He's like my age, and there used to be a really famous uh, publishing conference that would take place in Cannes, France, and I would see Justin meeting with all um, the collection societies from all over the world and putting those deals in place for downtown. And now you have access to those deals with Song Trust. So I think that's pretty rad. Um, okay, so when you distribute through CD Baby in particular, TuneCore, I think DistroKid has this option as well. There's a box that uh, pops up or an option that pops up, and I'm paraphrasing, and it says something like, want to collect more money? Check this box. It, do, you, do you know what I'm talking about? Have you checked this box? Yes, who wouldn't? Um, very often, you are letting CD Baby or TuneCore administer, administer your publishing. Um, and that's that's fine uh, in theory. Like CD Baby is also owned by Downtown, so they use Collected collection system but the reason I recommend not doing that is if you distribute uh, with DistroKid for this release and then you're on an indie label and then maybe you try CD Baby, then your music publishing is in like three or four or five different places. So what I really love about working with SongTrust is they are your publishing administrator and then everything is streamlined and in one place. So just like why, why make your life harder, right? Like. I'm already, you know, we're going to do a revenue stream checklist episode and make sure you're not missing anything. But why create more buckets for yourself of a single revenue stream instead of just doing it with Song SongTrust? Um, so that's my opinion. Like, don't check that box and if it makes you feel better, I've taken on songwriters and artists for management, like really savvy ones and said, have you ever checked that box? No. And then I go and do a publishing deal with them or I sign them up for song trust. And there's a conflict because they did check that box. So, um, and then it can take a little bit to untangle it. I do think it's worth it to untangle it though. Cause like I said, it's nice to see all of your music publishing in one place. So you can also work with a music publisher, and I think one reason why music publishing gets a bad rap is in the 20th century, which wasn't all that long ago. Um, you would have to sign your rights away to a music publisher um, to collect on the money that song trusts can now collect for you. So I was on a panel once with the Village People's manager, and I said, "I'm going to guess that if any of those guys wrote, you know, YMCA or any of those famous songs, that." they don't own the publishing. And the manager was like, yeah, of course of course, they don't. Um, I'm not saying this happened to the village people, but I'm sure you've heard tons of horror stories of artists signing, you know, their publishing rights away in 1970 for what sounded like a lot of money, then maybe $10,000, whatever, even $100,000. And then it goes on to make millions. Again, I swear I'm not just a song trust commercial, but that's something I love about SongTrust is you own your rights. You can collect the publishing. You're not signing anything away. But music publishing companies still exist, right? So this is all negotiable, but there are two main types of deals when it comes to music publishing companies. There's an admin or administration deal. And those terms are gonna be very similar to something like Song Trust. Um, Song Trust really mirrors an admin deal. So it's gonna be anywhere. Song Trust is 85 15 in your favor. An admin deal could be anywhere from 80 20 in your favor, 90 10. Um, If you're Max Martin, who wrote like all those Britney Spears hits and more, I think he has a 1%, you know, a 99% in his favor admin deal, because he can command that. And in an admin deal, you own your songwriting rights. Um, you are licensing your publishing to a music publisher for three years, five years, whatever the term is, but you own their rights and they're going to go out and pitch you for sync. The, and there are advances in admin deals as well. They're smaller, um, unless you're Max Martin probably, Um, But they're smaller than co-publishing deals, which is what I'm going to talk about next. So a co-publishing deal does take a percentage of your copyright, um, of your songwriting. It could be for 20 years, 25 years. It could be in perpetuity, forever. You should only ever sign a co-publishing deal if it is a fat advance, okay? Okay. I am not against co-publishing deals by any means. I've been privileged to do you know, six-figure co-publishing deals for songwriters where they've been able to put you know, a down payment on a home in Green Hills, which is a really beautiful neighborhood in Nashville. Um, but you really need to know what you're signing up for. Um, my friend Dan is a musician and producer, and he called me once and said, hey, I just got offered this publishing deal. Can I hire you to take a look at it? And it was a $2,000 advance for, I think it was 25 years, but let's just say 20 to make the math a little bit easier. So it was a $2,000 advance for a 20-year co-publishing deal. And I knew Dan actually didn't really need the $2,000, but if he did, I said to him, you know what, you could go work at Starbucks and, you know, make this money in a few months or whatever. Um, And he wanted to negotiate the deal himself. He just kind of hired me um, to tell them what to do, basically. And I said, go back to them and say, do you offer admin deals? Because a $2,000 advance is uh, much more reasonable for an admin deal, which is just a few years and you uh, own your rights. Um, and he, again, he probably would have signed this $2,000 co-publishing deal had he not talked to me. $2,000 over 20 years is $100 a year. So even if that sounded pretty good to him, I'm like, dude, just do the math. Um, So, and you should never do any sort of publishing deal without an attorney as well. I'm not an attorney, Um, but I helped him get the deal, you know, in better shape before he did take it to an attorney to review the actual contract and agreement. Um, But I said, go back to them, see if they do admin deals. Some companies don't, but that would be the first thing, you know, I recommended for him in this scenario. Turns out they don't. And then I said, go back to them and ask them for more money. And suddenly that $2,000 advance turned into a $10,000 advance. And I still think $10,000 is way too low for 20 years. What is that, like 500 bucks a year? But that was good enough for Dan. He was like, sweet, someone's giving me $10,000. They're going to go work my music. So um, to recap, when you work with a publishing company, there's two main types of deals. There's an admin short for administrative deal, very similar to song trust terms. You own and control the rights. It's going to be roughly 80-20, 90-10 in your favor. They might offer you, um, you know, 85-15 in your favor. And maybe you do want an advance. Maybe that few thousand dollars is going to help you out. Um, So then they may give you a few thousand dollars advance, but then maybe it's um, 80-20 in your favor, right? So that's where that negotiation can slide a little bit. And look, even, um, if you are the next Paul McCartney, um, if you are brand new and don't have a track record, it's going to be hard for you to negotiate those deals. It doesn't mean you're not going to get offered a publishing deal, but don't be offended, you know, if, um, it's not like the greatest terms ever. Um, but again, an admin deal, 80, 20, 85, 50, I really wouldn't go below 80, 20 on an admin deal. Um, 85, 15, 90, 10, depending on an advance, and that's usually going to be a few, uh, a year term, two year, three, three year term, something like that. And then to get out of it, more often than not, um, you have to give notice. So, say it's a one year term, you're actually not out of it in a year. You have to tell them. So you really need to read that contract. Always work with a music attorney so you know, oh, okay, I do want to get out of this, and I have to give them notice 30 days before the one year is up. And you also have to recoup any sort of advance, which usually happens in publishing. There is a lot of money in publishing. Um, And then, like I said, only do a co-publishing deal if you are getting a significant advance. Personally, I've been fortunate to... um, never see a co-publishing deal offered without an advance. But I was on a panel here in Milwaukee where um, there were people talking about that. Like it still happens. I think, unfortunately, I think it happens a lot of places, but it happens in Nashville in particular. So, you know, Carl uh, Carl Folks Esquire said on our Get Get Your Business Affairs episode together, um, no deal is better than a bad deal, right? And like I said, I'm not saying don't do co-publishing deals. Um, I've also done significant... um, advances uh, for new artists with co-publishing deals because we used that money to get them on the road, help pay for promo, things like that. But really know what you're signing up for there and always work with a music attorney. But I I keep preaching song trust because that is open to everyone and music publishing deals are not. Um, So before we get into sync, do you have any other questions about music publishing or music publishing deals? Okay. Um, That's enough on that. So now I'm going to talk about how to land a sync placement. I wrote an article with this title a few years ago for a website called HypeBot, and I still get emails like once a week um, thanking me for this. Um, so this information is available. It's, that that article is a little outdated with some of the companies, but the concepts are, still hold true. So if you want a free reference, you can just Google how to land a sync placement, my name, and, and HypeBot, and I'm sure that will come up. Um, look, sync placements aren't guaranteed. Uh, you know, I, you know, when we talk about revenue streams, like a revenue stream checklist later on in this podcast, um, I actually, I have two revenue streams. I'll have two revenue streams list for you. One, everything that's owed to you. If you write, record, um, release and, and play music live. And then a second category of bonus revenue streams. I put sync in the bonus category cause it's not something um, you can count on or, or rely on. Um, I mentioned I interviewed uh, the artist Zoe Keating um, in the forward of the book and in season one, and, and she lands a lot of syncs, and she calls it mana from heaven, right? Like, it's great when it happens, but it's not something she can necessarily count on or rely on. Um, I just want to reiterate what Julia said uh, what on what is a sync. Sync is short for synchronization, Um, So that's literally going to be syncing your music to film, to TV, to a video game, to a commercial advert, um, you know, even a YouTube video, documentary, all that good stuff. So that's what a sync is. Most of us know what a sync is. Um, But don't be offended if your music isn't syncable, you know? Like I keep talking about the band I came up managing, the Dresden Dolls, Um, I also worked with a Chicago band called the fiery furnaces. And I remember it was actually the same sync company bank robber. It was really helpful. Um, Lyle who runs bank robber said to me, um, this was really helpful feedback. He said, music supervisors and music supervisors are the people um, that make these decisions for film, TV, video games, all, all that stuff. Uh, Music supervisors love these bands. They are fans of these bands. They want to be on the guest list for their shows, but They also said this music is too weird and it stands out, right? Um, So again, sync is literally um, syncing your music to picture. And that's why I'm estimating on this stat. I don't have it like in front of me, but like 80% of syncs are actually instrumental, right? Um, Because when you're watching a TV show, it's not always like in your face with lyrics or whatever. It's music that's going on in the background. So first, don't be offended if your music isn't syncable. That happens to big artists all the time. I've also worked with small artists that don't have a super huge career, but make a ton of money in sync, right? So just don't be offended if your music isn't for sync. But I really loved your question on, can I, you know, make a separate batch of music that might be a little more syncable that's different from your public persona. Absolutely, there's tons of people that do that. Um, so first, so again, when I when I have a, I didn't mean that, mean for it to be clickbaity, but when I have a clickbaity you know, article title like how to land a sync placement, what I'm suggesting here is how to put yourself in the best position to land a sync placement, right? And the first way is make instrumentals, okay? And I interviewed uh, my friend Lauren Ross in season one for this episode. She founded Terrorbird's um, sync Company, and I'm going to explain what Terrorbird is in a second. And Lauren also pointed out, get your instrumentals mastered. I mean, most people here know what mastering is. You can use mastering software online for like 20 bucks. We had Anna on, on Saturday to teach us all about mastering. Um, so don't neglect your instrumentals first, make them, you know, and if you're working with a producer, it is standard for them to deliver instrumentals. But in my experience, even working with huge producers, I always have to ask for them, you know, so make sure it's in your producer deal, you know, um, pay them. And, uh, we should, if we didn't touch on this in the business affairs, um, episode, I apologize, but when you're paying any producer or player, pay them 50% up front, Um, have the producer agreement and the work for hire, um, for your players. And then they get the balance when, uh, the balance payment when you get that signed agreement. And then in the producer's case, when you get all the recordings, when you get the instrumentals and make sure those instrumentals are included, even though it's totally standard and producers know this for some reason, it still kind of goes to the wayside. So that's a huge way to increase your chances of landing a sync placement is to have instrumentals. And then, like I said, uh, Lauren Ross mentioned in season one, get those instrumentals uh, mastered because that can really help it stand out. Um, next, when you're working with a music publisher or a sync pitching company, and I'm going to, um, go through the sync pitching company options in a moment. Um, but you want to be really mindful how you deliver these assets. Okay. Like someone at a music, you know, when Julia, even when Julia was an intern at downtown working in sync, right? Like she is, um, dealing with tons of songs. Your sync pitching company is dealing with thousands of songs, right? So one way to stand out is just to be organized. Don't send a ton of huge attachments, right? Don't send a ton of wave files. Have download links. And I would recommend actually having a Spotify link to your music if it's been released. You could have a private SoundCloud streaming link if it's unreleased music and then have a Dropbox or Google. I, I think Dropbox is a little bit easier on the receiving end, um, but it could be a Google Drive link too um, to download high quality MP3s of both the songs and the instrumentals and then the wave files of both the songs and, and the instrumentals. Um, it's nice for them to have those high quality MP3s maybe the, because maybe they are emailing um, one of the MP3s to a music supervisor, that is something they can email back and forth, but obviously they're going to need the WAV files. As well um, for when your songs do get placed, right? So I can picture that email in my brain. I'm a huge nerd, um, but have the Spotify link of your released music, so you know music supervisors um, can check it out really easily, or your team can send it to music supervisors. Uh, is what I'm saying. Have a second link if it's unreleased music of um, you know a SoundCloud link, a third link of high quality MP3s. Um, and then a fourth link of the wave files. And then you should also have um, those second, third, and fourth links in instrumental versions as well, right? So I would do, because you're probably, you know, you could release um, instrumentals of your music on streaming. I know some artists that have done that, um, and the fans really like it, and it's, you know, helped with their revenue and playlists and all that good stuff. Um, but, to, but regardless, you know, have a private SoundCloud link um, to your, mastered instrumentals if you are not releasing them publicly and don't have that Spotify link and then have your high-quality MP3 download link of your mastered instrumentals and then your WAV file link of your mastered instrumentals because think of all... The other songwriters and musicians that are just like sending huge wave files. And like, look, like industry people, I mean, everyone's busy, right? But like industry people are busy, right? Like we're on planes, we're on slow Wi-Fi, right? So try to make our jobs easier and stand out amongst, you know, thousands of other artists and songwriters by delivering those nice, pretty links, you know? Um, You know, I'll get a little more into this, but also deliver that on like a Monday or Tuesday. Um, Not on Christmas, not on Saturday night, not when we're on vacation. And I totally get it if that's when you're available because many of you work. Um, But there are free tools like Boomerang for Gmail where you can schedule emails to arrive like Monday midday or Tuesday late morning. Don't send it on a Friday afternoon where we're all exhausted and ready to go back back to our lives. Um, So does that make sense so far? Okay, so honestly not trying to sell books but I also have a book out called interning 101 that I might turn into um, something called modern office modern office basics keeping it keeping it all in ourself together <laughs> because I meet people of all ages um, that just need to get organized with that stuff and I understand that it's overwhelming um, but yeah if, the more you can organize asset delivery that's gonna help and then of course have the instrumentals okay so How do I get, you know, what are all these sync pitching companies? What are Julie and I talking about? Um, First, I want to talk about an option that I didn't talk about on season one because I just learned about it over the past year. Um, There are websites like Creative Commons and Free Music Archive, where you can upload your music that you own the rights to. Um, And not to jump around too much. When I say you own the rights to, that means you own the recording, and then you also wrote the songs, or you have clearance from your co-writers, which I'll get into the clearance from the co-writers. But I really appreciated Carl folks um, reminding us that BeatStars is a place where um, you can go and get beats that you can use for sync. I meet way too many artists and students that are... Gosh, there's actually, um, there's a group that my business partner manages. And I was like, where did you guys get these beats? YouTube was the, I'm like, you can get beats on, I didn't know that, right? So make sure if you're getting beats from other people, it's from a reputable source, like uh, Beat uh, BeatStars, right? That's what it's called. Sorry about that. Um, and that you can actually, thank you. And that you can actually use the music for sync. You can't sync any music if it has samples in it. Um, so... Um, That's really important as well. But anyway, so when you own the rights to your music, which is very powerful, people in the pre-digital era basically didn't, Um, Creative Commons and Free Music Archive is an interesting place to start because, uh, hear me out on this, Uh, you can license your music for free there, which might not sound very appealing, um, but I've met artists um, here in Milwaukee and in cities similar to Milwaukee that have landed thousands of sync placements through Free Music Archive and Creative Commons or even tens of thousands of sync placements. And part of that license, even though the music is for free and it might be for a student film or a documentary, is they have to credit you. And so I know artists that have driven so much traffic through that back to their Spotify that they, hear me out, they cover all of their expenses, their rent, everything through their Spotify royalties because they've gained so many fans worldwide through that traffic. Now, these artists get really upset when someone breaks the license and they are not credited because that is the license. You need to know who these people are. And also a lot of times there's legit music supervisors checking out Creative Commons and Free Music Archive because they might be on a super low budget project. And then I've seen those music music supervisors go back to that artist and say, actually, I'm working with a big budget film now and I found your music on um, Creative Commons and Free Music Archive. So definitely consider checking that out. And also like, People can still give you money on those websites. You know what I mean? Like you could, they'll still give you sometimes a hundred bucks or 500 bucks or whatever. But again, if it's a documentary or a project without, or a nonprofit, right. Um, a project without a lot of money, that's a really good place to get started. And also you can use those syncs to show publishing companies. Hey, my music is syncable. I'm not one of the weird bands that I managed um, that stands out and doesn't necessarily sync to picture uh, very well. So, okay. So that's, that's a new thing for me that I think is really, really interesting. From there, I referenced a story, um, and some of these questions came up. Um, there are, and I'm sure you know, many of them, there are sync pitching companies that accept anyone. Um, I really like jingle punks. There are many out there. I need to continue to do my research. So make sure you're reading everything. You own all of your rights. Um, But these are often music retitling companies, which on one hand, frankly, that kind of sucks. Um, They're going to retitle your ASCAP or your BMI um, registration so they can get a cut of that, which is not necessarily ideal, but we all have to start somewhere. Um, These companies generally um, take a 50% commission, which is very large. But again, you still own your rights. And so I was working with a new band And signed them up for music dealers, which was in Chicago. They're no longer uh, around anymore. But someone like Jingle Punks is a perfect example. And I told this story already, but now we're on the sync episode. Um, And they landed like a $15,000 Advil ad. And which might sound like a lot of money, but it's actually quite low for a major, you know, over-the-counter drug like that. But we all have to start somewhere. Um, So Music Dealers takes their 50%. I take my 15% as manager. That gets whittled down. What is that, like six grand left for a five-piece band? Still better than nothing. You know, we all have to start somewhere. But the band owns their recording side. And this was in the iTunes era. So they kept all of the iTunes money that came in. This ad aired during the World Series on a major network in prime time. So their BMI royalties, their PRO royalties were over six figures, over $100,000. And then I was able to get them out of that music dealer's agreement because you can, and that's why you need to read these agreements. But usually with these sync companies that are music libraries open to anyone, you can. And then I went and did an extremely lucrative publishing deal with them, um, with peer music publishing and, and they had songs, um, you know, played at the Oscars. Um, what's that Ethan Hawke film like, uh, boyhood. They had a big sink in in boyhood and went on to land a lot more sinks, right? So we all have to start somewhere. And actually, I was on a panel here in Milwaukee with some really big music supervisors and ad agency people, and they started out horrified by that story and then ended up smiling, right? So understand the process because we all have to start somewhere. Um, The next option, which is something that Julia referred to, is what I would call more selective sink pitching companies. And these companies are like Terrorbird, And like I said, I did like a really long conversation with Lauren Ross, who founded Terror Bird Sync Company um, on episode one. She's brilliant. She also started the Sync division for Kill Rock Stars and their legendary label and land all of Elliot Smith's syncs. But um, there's companies like Terrorbird, Bird, Zinc Music, Bank Robber, who I mentioned, music alternatives. Um, these companies are going to keep like roughly a 25% commission. Sometimes it's 30%. You own your rights, but these companies are selective, right? So I've taken music to all, and I've known these people for years. Like I've taken music to these folks and they've been like, nope, can't sync that. You know, kind of like, they didn't say this about Dresden Dolls or Fiery Furnaces, but bands like that, right? Like love the band, but no, I can't do that. Um there was another band I was working with um, called Gold Motel, and I sent that to Lauren Ross. And I don't think anyone here has necessarily heard of Gold Motel unless you're a huge Greta Morgan fan. Um, but I took Gold Motel to Lauren, and she wrote me back a few months ago. And like, I didn't hear back from her right away. No big deal. We're all busy. And she wrote me back a few months later like, oh my gosh, I can crush it with this. This is so sinkable. Um, I'm so sorry. It took me so long to get back to you. And she did. She absolutely crushed it on that band because I don't really have A&R ears like this, but she knows what she can land, right? So Golden Golden Hotel went on to be very profitable for them in the sync and publishing realm, um, more so than like tickets they sold, right? So um, like I said, I've worked with big bands that sell a lot of tickets that don't land syncs, and I've worked with smaller bands that just using tickets as a revenue stream example. Smaller bands that don't sell a lot of tickets that do land a lot of sinks. Um, So definitely send your music to Terror Bird, Zinc, Bank Robber, Music Alternatives. Really great folks. They know what they they know what they can land. Don't be offended. You know if. Um, if you're not a fit for them i've worked with tons of artists that are not a fit for them and again these are the companies that really send out briefs like hey we're looking for a lizzo replacement hey we're looking for a whatever replacement right or we're looking to write for picture and they're like they have amazing relationships with um with music supervisors like i remember i work with um uh, the autumn defense, which is a, a couple of guys in Wilco. And I got a sync request from Scott Cresto at music, alternative alternatives for them. And I was like, and we were like, Oh, that's cool. That sounds good. And then I was looking for another email a year later. And I, and I was like, Oh my gosh, this was that Greta Gerwig film. Like what's the one like out in California. Doesn't matter. It's a very famous filmmaker. And I was like, that's so cool. They didn't get it, but it's cool that they were up for it. And like, and same thing happened to, um, Julia Noons, who we look after. Um, she landed a Netflix placement and these shows aren't out yet. So we don't necessarily know them. And then I'm spacing and getting a little hungry, but um, it ended up being like the number one um, show on, on Netflix. The second season just came out. I'm totally spacing. Sorry. Maybe we'll add that to the audio version. Um, but yeah, so reach out to those companies. You're going to own your rights. It's going to be 75 negotiable, but roughly 25 or sorry, roughly 75% um, 75, 70 to 75% in your favor, and uh, 25 or 30% to them. Um, most of these companies also um, have music publishing arms. Sometimes their back-end admin is companies like Downtown. Um, you, if you're already with SongTrust, you can let them know, oh, my publishing is already administered, right? So I'm not saying don't work with them for publishing, but I tend to like to spread that out a little bit, have someone pitching you for sync, and then... You can also be collecting on your own through Song Trust. Um, and then finally there are publishing companies, which I already talked about. Um, so you need to get signed to a publishing company. And look, like, I mean, we all know this. Like, we've I'm mean, I'm not saying like these are bad deals or whatever, but like I've worked with tons of public, like I've worked with tons of publishing companies that don't land any sinks, right? So none of these are well, I would say the selective sync sync companies are, are very good, but I've also like had them sign up artists and not land any things, right? And so like so many things, a lot of this is on you. See if you can be making relationships with music supervisors, like Wave, if you can figure out who landed those things, who the music supervisors were for you at ESPN, follow them on Instagram. See if you can connect, send them your unreleased music. Like they're already a fan of yours and they want, maybe they're at ABC now, maybe they're music supervising a film, you know? So the more you can figure out who these people are and mindfully connect with them, don't send them like a million messages, um, which is a perfect segue into my next point. Uh, working your sync company and publishing deal. So say TerraBird, you know, picks you up one of these selective uh, sync companies, or say you do a publishing deal, you know, with Domino. I mean that they're labeled too, but I'm just thinking about some of the publishing companies we mentioned with arcade songs or, or Domino or, or pure music publishing. Um, Maybe they've even like on the publishing side, taken you out to dinner. They're really excited about you. You sign this deal. Well, now the work really begins, okay? And that's because they have thousands, if not tens of thousands of copyrights. So again, you want to stand out. You want your music to stand out. Um, One of the first ways to do that is just to connect with a human. Make sure you have a name there. Make sure sure you have a contact there. See if you can get to know other people at the company. Again, you want to do so mindfully and, and respectfully, And you also want to make their jobs as easy as possible. Because again, they're super busy. um, They might be hungover. They might have families. They have lives at the end of the day. So you want your music to stand out, even if you're the greatest songwriter in history. So one way you can do that is to send them an email I would say no more than once or twice a month on a Monday or Tuesday, also using Boomerang for Gmail if you can't send it at that time, um, with your latest and greatest highlights. So send them a bullet-pointed email um, with news on your career, right? Like, here's new music. They definitely want to know that, and they definitely want unreleased music as soon as possible because that's going to be really attractive to music supervisors. But... Let them know about your shows. Let them know about your webcasts. Send them press links you've been getting. Let them know about radio play you've been getting. And um, like I said, I wouldn't recommend... uh, In fact, I don't recommend doing this more than once or twice a week. Do not email them every day on weekends, holidays. I know I mentioned that. Um, Remember, you are connecting with a human and their life is super busy. Their goal... The goal is to make their job easy, not to overload them with unnecessary messages. But when you're sending this bullet point email, like, here's my upcoming shows. Here's press I just got. Here's radio play I'm getting. Offer them, make sure they, they know they always have access to the guest list. Make sure they know their staff and team always have access to the guest list. Make sure um, they know that music supervisors always have access to the guest list. Same for webcast codes, right? It's not just in person anymore. Um, offer to pay your, to play, <laughs> offer to play your sync pitching company or publisher's office, right? Like I've had artists come in and do little lunch break sets, right? Like that's going to stand out to them a little bit more than someone just being, um, in a dead, in a database. You could also offer to do a webcast set. Um, you could also do the same for ad agencies and there's quite a few ad agencies here in the Midwest. I've had artists do, um, lunch break sets, uh, at ad agencies in Chicago, there's ad agencies in Minneapolis, there's ad agencies, there's ad agencies in Wisconsin, there's ad agencies in uh, Michigan. Um, So again, offer them guest lists, um, let them know you're down to come in and play. You don't want to be too over the top about this stuff. um, But really like, Arm your sync pitching team and your publisher with your latest and greatest highlights because they're going to take those press hits and that information to music supervisors and be like, wow, me is really crushing it in Milwaukee. Wave Chappelle is really crushing it. You know, like here's press that they're getting. Radio Milwaukee is playing them. Hyphen's playing them. Um, Instead of them hopefully seeing that on Instagram or something. Does that make sense? Okay, great. Um, one last thing, and then I'll answer any questions and let you all go for the night. Um, I'm sure many of you have experienced, um, with a lot of these, you know, music libraries and the more like retitling sync pitching companies, um, that they are non-exclusive. And when I was a young manager, I made this, maybe you all have made this mistake. I was like, oh, well, the more the merrier, right? Like, let's sign up the artists I'm managing for everyone. Well, the music industry is small, the music supervision community is even smaller. And music supervisors are at the behest of directors, producers, timelines, budgets, so they have to move fast. Sometimes they have a few hours to clear a sink, usually like a day. Um, But I had a young band um, who was up for like a $30,000 trailer for a Vince Vaughn film. And again, this was in my younger manager days. And I had them signed up with a bunch of non-exclusive sync pitching companies. And the music supervisor realized that two different sync pitching companies had pitched the same song for this trailer. And the music supervisor was like, bye. I am not dealing with this. I am not untangling this mess. So I really only recommend working with one sync pitching company and finding a human there, really building a relationship. Because guess what? They know all the same people and they're getting all the same briefs as the people at the other sync pitching companies. So even though it seems very attractive and a no-brainer to be like, oh, it's not exclusive. Like the more people working my music, the merrier. I would just find one that you really connect with and crush it with them um, instead of spreading yourself out too thin because that band lost out on that 30,000 sync and that sucks for them um, and sucked, sucked for me too as the manager. So... The other thing um, that can be very attractive to sync pitching companies is what's called one stop, uh, one stop shopping. So we know there's two main rights in music the recording side, the publishing side, you know, the songwriting side that we learned about today. Uh, most sync pitching companies are going to want to represent both sides because they also want to make the music supervisor's jobs very easy. So if I'm a music supervisor, And I'm licensing a Wave Chappelle song at ESPN. And the recording is with Terrorbird and the publishing is with Pure Music, which happens all the time, don't get me wrong. I'm going to have to really want that song because I'm going to have to chase two different people. It's going to be very attractive to your sync pitching companies. If you say, I own both sides, you can do one-stop shopping, it's easy clearance. You might land more syncs that way. And then as you grow in your career, um, and I've done this with more established artists. I, I personally like for more established artists, not to be a hypocrite, having one person, you know, one entity represent um, the recording side and another represent the songwriting or publishing side. But when you're getting going, I would recommend doing one-stop shopping. Land those $500 sinks, $500 sinks land those $1,000 sinks, build up your sync repertoire so you can be in a position if you want you know, I, I really wouldn't have more than two entities representing your music. And it's really one, right? Because it's one on the recording side and it's one on, on the publishing side. And really, the only reason this, I feel weird using this phrase, but the only reason I've really been able to get away with that is all the sync companies I work with know how on top of things I am. I and my company have a policy of responding to all emails within 24 business hours. So what that means is you know, if I get a, I mean, this might not even be fast enough, I hate to say it, but if I get a sync request on a Friday afternoon, they're going to hear from me by Monday. You know, if I get a sync request on Tuesday, I mean, they're probably going to hear from me within a few hours, to be honest, but they're going to hear from me by Wednesday. So that's why these companies, I've been doing this long enough that these companies are like, Oh, well, we know Emily will get back to us, but they don't necessarily know you. And also, like, we want you to be humans and, and artists too, you know? So if you know you're gonna hole up on the studio hole up in the studio or you're gonna go on a fishing trip and not have service, or you're gonna be on a yoga retreat or something, give them the one-stop shopping. And you could also give your sink pitching company pre-clearance where they don't even have to check with you, you know? Um, Now, you can also carve out exceptions, um, especially if you're doing pre... You could do this anyway. Um, But especially if you're doing pre-clearance, I'm just making up these categories. But you might, you know, you might say, I don't want my music with cigarettes. I don't want my music with alcohol. Um, Or I'm vegan. I don't want my music on fast food companies, right? Or I don't want... um, you know, I don't want to be associated with ads or companies that go against like you know my own personal beliefs. So you, could, you can carve those categories out. And you, you'll generally get asked that by a publisher or pitching company. Um, but that's something you can definitely request and ask for, especially if you do um, a pre-cleared deal. Because then, you, like I said, you can hole up in the studio and you don't have to be um, beholden to your devices. Because even though I kind of am, that's no fun. For anyone. And finally, um, you know, when you're co writing, you may also want to. I recommend doing a waiver with your co writers that their share is cleared for sync. Because another thing that's a turnoff for music supervisors is if Maggie and I are writing a song together, maybe Maggie, Wave Chappelle, and I are writing a song, or maybe there's five songwriters, right? A music supervisor might be like, bye. That's five clearances on the songwriting side. Plus, I have to clear on the recording side. So if you get waivers with your co-writers, and they're still going to get paid, they just don't have to be on their devices all the time, right? So I don't know any co-writer that ever says no to that. We're saying, hey, can you just sign this form? And it means that your share is pre-cleared for sync. So music supervisors can run with this. My publisher can run with it. My sync team can run with it. Um, And then you can be out on a boat or something in the middle of the ocean and not have to deal with this stuff. So again, think about what it's like on the other end of the inbox. You want to make music supervisors lives, uh, easier, your sync pitching team easier and your music publishing, uh, team, uh, team's life easier. So I think that's pretty much it. Um, unless you guys have any other questions on, on sync. Yeah. What's your name?
1: How's it going? Um, I was just wondering, what are some other good ways to stand out to these sync companies? Because they're obviously getting thousands, tens of thousands of emails, and sometimes, like as a beginner with you know just starting out, it seems like the equivalent of passing out flyers on the street, and they just like crumple it up and throw it away. Yeah. Um, so yeah, what are some other good ways to like stand out for those cold emails or other application processes? Yeah.
0: To a music publishing company or are you working with, with a sync company? What's, okay, right. Um, I would start with Creative Commons or Free Music Archive and start, see if you can land some syncs on your own so you can show them, hey, I'm in this documentary. Hey, I'm in this YouTube, um, you know, clip for a nonprofit, right? Then you could take it. Um, certainly to the music retitling companies who are going to accept you anyway, but that would be a good way to stand out to them, right? Like you're already showing that your music is syncable and then you can match it to picture. If you've ever gotten any press hits, if you're getting some radio play, include that stuff in there and do the same with Terrorbird and Zinc Music and Bank Robber and Music Alternatives and those more selective sync companies. Show, you're kind of doing the work for them, you know? Like show that your music is syncable, and then let them know, hey, I have shows going on. Um, Would you like to be on the guest list? Um, Music supervisors are always welcome to the guest list. And and then just deliver those files in a really clean way. You know, I mean, start with Spotify links because it's so easy for us just to click on a streaming link. Um, And like I said, be mindful about when you are sending these emails, like the amount of emails I get. The only time the entertainment industry takes off is between Christmas and New Year's, and that is when I am inundated with messages, okay? Um, So the whole goal is for your message to get read. You could also set up, um, this is free in Gmail too, but email tracking, right? Um, So you can see if your email is getting read, because if it's not, it might be going into spam, Um, so maybe it's worth picking up the phone and be like, Hey, I'm Micah. I wanted to make sure you got my email, you know, but it's, it's, it's like anything else. It's like building your fan base. Sometimes it's going to take three or four tries for it to really break through. And none of this is guaranteed in sync, but those are my tips for best practices on how to increase your chances of landing a sync placement. If that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Anyone else? That's enough music uh, publishing and and sync for tonight. Um, Well, thank you guys. I hope you're walking out of here um, knowing what music publishing is, right? It's going out and working your songwriting and collecting, going out and working your songwriting and collecting all the money that's owed to it um, and that you know how to collect um, the, the money for your music publishing, which is signing up for your PRO and then with a publishing administrator like ASCAP, or with a publishing company through an admin or co-pub deal. Um, So thank you guys so much. Uh, Come back on Saturday where we are going to be talking about setting up your release and distribution plan. You've been in the studio. Now we're registering your songs and your music publishing. And next week we're going to get to actually releasing your music. So thanks so much. Thanks to Julia. And we'll see you on Saturday.